Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show this week, and thank you very much for inviting me into your home. I hope that you find my answers interesting, informative, and educational. Um, I wanted to put a quick plug in for the podcast this week. It is all about QAnon, the origins of, and I spoke with somebody who's a bit more knowledgeable about this than I am, and we had a great talk. Uh, and so I hope you guys will check that out. And also, if you have heard anything about Laura Prepon uh, and her exit from Scientology announced this last week, uh, or if you have not heard anything about that, then you're going to want to check out the uh, Critical Conversation show that uh, we did on Friday because we go into some detail about uh, some conjecture, you know, about what might be going on there and what she's been doing with her life over the last five years. And we sort of looked at uh, what she has been saying and doing up until this last week and found some clues as to, you know, what might have prompted some of her uh, willingness or desire to reset her life. So anyway, I hope you'll check that out. And uh, on that note, I also wanted to quickly plug Critical Merchandise. Uh, if you want to promote my podcast, promote my channel, and uh, get some good stuff in the meantime and also help support this channel, then check out the link below to Critical Merchandise uh, because I've got some fun stuff there for you guys. And you can put them on you know, various logos and things I've, I've put together, and you can put those on hats and mugs and shirts. You don't just have to wear them on, on uh, T-shirts. Anyway, you guys can check that out and let me know what you think. All right, so let's get on with your questions. Martin Welsh, what do you think Scientology's attitude is regarding the COVID vaccine? Would they encourage their members to take it or not? All right, thank you very much for this question, Martin. This is a tough question because I'm, you know, obviously not in the Scientology bubble world anymore. And there is a lot of mixed messaging that comes out of that bubble when it comes to things like vaccines. Um, as you guys know, or as I have, you know, detailed in earlier videos, uh, you know, pretty much at length, is Scientology is very into, Scientologists are very into conspiracy theories. Uh, they, L. Ron Hubbard was a conspiracy theorist. He, he had his own ideas about how the world worked. And he, um, you know, said that there's 12 guys who kind of run things and there are media moguls and international bankers and financiers and people of power and wealth and prestige, and they're the ones who call the shots. And this whole, you know, they, the psychiatry is plugged into this as a sort of enforcement arm, and, you know, there's a whole song and dance that, that's, in, that's included in all of that. And Alex Jones and those kinds of sites, David Icke, these guys— these are long-term conspiracy theorists and, you know, kind of, they make some pretty wacky claims, and to say the least. And I used to subscribe to, I used to watch some of that and follow that, and we would use that material in recruiting Scientologists. So if that's the entire basis that you're, like, for, for the Sea Org, we would do it for Sea Org recruitment or for staff recruitment. So if that's where your head's at, and that's where you think it needs to be in order to save the world or do something about the world, and that's where I used to be, um, then, you know, you would fall for that kind of thinking. And that includes a very heavy dose of anti-science and anti-authority thinking. Scientologists are all about disagreeing. In fact, um, the key word, if you were going to distill the entire concept of OT— for a Scientologist, that concept is disagreement. And I haven't really, I haven't really mentioned this before or gone into this angle before, but it's, it's true. 
we used to talk about this as Scientologists. I would talk with OTs and they'd be ah, disagreeing, man. You are disagreeing with the physical universe. You're disagreeing with all the way it should be, the ought to's, the should be's, the now you have to's. You know, that's what being OT is. It's, it's going, no, I don't agree with any of that. I don't have to be a part of your system. And I don't have to do what you say. And I don't have to follow these physical universe rules and laws. So that leads to very anti-authority and, 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 and very often anti-science kind of thinking and a distrust of authority because and science because Hubbard says these are con jobs. These guys are trying to get something over on you, especially when you get into the humanities and, and psychiatry and psychology in these fields. But really, he sort of spreads this across all of them. So you get a sort of distrust that is that is sort of sewn into Scientologists through Hubbard's lectures. They take to this in varying degrees. Some Scientologists buy into it all the way. Others have some doubts and reservations. But it's not required that you buy into Hubbard's politics or Hubbard's ideologies or conspiracy theories in order to go up the bridge. You can do Scientology and get all the way through to the top without ever getting into the whole anti-psychiatry rhetoric and all of that. You're going to hear it, but you don't necessarily have to fully buy into it as long as you don't stand around going, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> you, know, you can't be calling Hubbard out as a liar or something. But I mean, like my mom, for example, she didn't buy into all the psychiatry stuff because she was a nurse and she had met and worked with psychiatrists and she knew they were not evil and they were not horrible people and and she didn't really buy into Hubbard's rhetoric about it. So, you know, and yet she moved all the way up to OT. So uh, my point is that some Scientologists buy into this and others don't. And that makes it a little hard to talk in broad generalities about how Scientologists think about vaccines because they're kind of all over the place on it. You have a ton of Scientologists and probably all the ones in Clearwater who are, are Florida people. They don't, they, there's no mask mandates in Florida. There's no control being put on this. And despite the fact that we have overfilling hospitals, according to media reports I see, uh, in Florida, you know, and, and people dying at higher rates and, and, and getting infected at higher rates, they don't care. They just, they, you know, it's not a thing. And in Florida, they just don't really, you know, you're not going to tell us what to do, Mr. Government. And okay, fine. Then, you know, you're going to have higher rates of people getting sick and you're going to have higher incidence of people dying as a result of that. That's just kind of the facts of the matter. But, you know, they're that they don't see the world that way. So they don't frame it that way. And that's what they're doing. And so there's a lot of Scientologists down there and they're right on board with that. And yet, and yet, my good friend Aaron tells me that uh, Scientologists that 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 Scientologists mask up in Clearwater, and that you can tell a Scientologist because it's somebody who's wearing a mask and gloves, like flat out, like 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 uh, Pat Harney from Flag, the OSA staff member there. When she goes to Clearwater events, local uh, business events or or association events or whatever, uh, she's masked and gloved and stands out like a sore thumb. So, well, what could be behind that? Why would why would the Sea Org in Clearwater be enforcing masks and gloves? Why would they be that, you know, uh, cautious? You could say even paranoid. 
Well, apparently, that would have to come from David Miscavige, wouldn't it? Of course it would. There wouldn't be other people in Clearwater enforcing that kind of control on the Sea Org. So my take on that, and it's a guess, it's subjective, you know, it's, it's sort of a suppositional, I should say, is um, I don't think, I think David Miscavige is terrified of getting COVID. I think he is. He's terrified of body vatans landing on him. He did, you know, he's not, he, he drinks all the time. He's 60. I mean, he is the target demographic for COVID <laughs> from the get-go. And it hasn't really changed in all these years, in, in this last, you know, two years. And uh, worse, we now have variants, right? The, the, the Delta variant and, and these other ones. And, um, and that presents a whole nother level of contagion and problems. So I think Miscavige is absolutely positively like, I'm not getting this thing. I don't want to die from this, right? And so he's enforcing this level of caution and safety around him. And so all the Sea Org members, you know, we're not going to get sick. And, you know, and it maybe it's not from his paranoia. Maybe he's just adamant that nobody in the Sea Org is to get COVID, period, right? I don't want anybody dying. I don't want anybody off post. I don't want anybody not working because of this. You know, because, you know, and people can end up in the hospital. I mean, it could get very serious if, if people catch this. So it could be, it could be that from a position of care of the safety and welfare of his staff, Miscavige is dictating this, but somehow I don't think so. Uh, when I think about Miscavige, I think about paranoia. <laughs> And we don't have similar reports out of Los Angeles of, of people masking and gloved up, too. So, you know, so it's possible that uh, things are a bit more lax in other parts of the Scientology world. And certainly at the org level, they are masked and, and they have the places spotless and clean and all that. But, um, but I've, I've seen pictures and been told that, you know, it's not necessarily uniformly the case that every, every Scientologist at the org level is masked up. So, um, so this is the data I have. It's not a lot, you know, it's a little sketchy and, it's, and there's a lot of supposition in there. Um, so how do Scientologists think about the vaccine? Well, I'm sure they're all over the spectrum on it. I'm sure there are many who are absolutely vaccinated, no problem, get me a vaccine. My mom would have been the first in line on that as a Scientologist, for example, if we were still in. Um, and then there's others who are full on anti-vax, anti-mask, you know, my civil rights, freedom, and all of that, right? And then there's probably people in the middle, just like there are in society, who are not in that 14% category of I'm absolutely positively never, ever going to follow any of this. I'm never going to get masked. I'm never going to get vaccinated. I'm never going to do any of it. That's about 14% stable, according to uh, 538 and other sources that I've read, as to the percentage of people who are just straight up not going to do it, no matter what you say or do. And then there's another percentage, 8, 10, 12% or something, who are fence sitters, who are wait and see, let's find out, I want to see the studies, I want to see more, I want to see long-term effects play out, or are in that situation of... They can't get vaccinated. They got some other pre-existing condition or medical situation or, 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 you know, compromised immune systems, that kind of thing where they're like, man, no, I'm not going to do that because it might, you know, there might actually be legitimate uh, medical-based 
uh, reasons to not get vaccinated. And I know that those people exist too. And when I'm talking about anti-vaxxers, and I'm not talking about those guys, right? If you got legit scientific medically backed reasons to not get vaccinated, then okay, obviously you shouldn't. But um, but if you can, you should. Uh, that's my that's that's my absolute take on it, and I'm I'm pretty un, uh, unmovable on that on that position personally. But Scientologists, I think you'll find all over. But I think you're going to find, from my own experience with Scientologists, I think you're going to find most of them disagreeing. I think you're going to find most of them going, "Yeah, I don't need that." Nah, I don't think so. And maybe with the recent spikes that we're experiencing across the nation right now, that might be changing some of their minds, like it is other people's minds, but. Generally speaking, I think you're going to find most Scientologists are kind of about it. You know, if I had to, if I had to say, well, where do most of them sit, probably there. Um, but there sure as hell aren't going to flag or any Sea Org base without being quarantined, protected, masked up, and everything. That's that's pretty firm, especially at flag. So. Uh, so make of that what you will, but that's the information I've got to give you. Oscar Q. Zilch. You mentioned that you discovered that you have a mild case of color blindness when you were working for Bridge Publications. How did your managers and coworkers treat you? Well, okay, so not well. This was a, this was an interesting story how this came up, actually, because I was... I never really talked, I don't think, about what I was doing at Bridge, but when I went from the RPF and then they transferred me over to Bridge Publications and they put me in the book-producing warehouse area, which is this gigantic room, this gigantic building. It's like football field size. I mean, it's really big. And, um, and in the printing area, they make books and they produce all the CDs and the, and the DVDs that Scientology has. All of that is produced in-house. So I was on a machine. I was my specialty was working on a foil stamping machine. It was called the Sorolia, uh, which is an Italian name for it's the Italian company that produces this machine. That's a foil stamping machine. So if you see dust jackets that have foil, you know, silver and gold and and nice coloring and shiny coloring on it. Uh, that's foil, and that foil is is hard pressed, you know, cold pressed on there. And this machine uh, operates at very high pressure, and it and it feeds the dust jackets or the material in through one end, and then it stamps it uh, like a like a printing press is kind of what it looks like. And you have to have everything perfectly lined up, and it's quite a little technical job learning how to operate that thing. It took me a few weeks, and then there was the the apprenticeship, and then the you know it's sort of uh, being watched. And uh, so I took over running this machine, and I ran that thing for months. And there was a particular, there were a couple Scientology books that have gold and silver foil stamping on them. Uh, Scientology 8808, 880, and I think a couple others. And when the foil was off, I couldn't tell if the coloring was off or if the if the positioning was off. I wasn't seeing it, and. And, and when you can't see something, it just doesn't exist. And if you don't know it's supposed to be there and it's not, you know, then if you if you don't know it, that, that you're supposed to be seeing something because you can't see it, it, it doesn't help you to tell you, well, it's right in front of your eyes, right? And this is what my senior would do. He'd come along and go, well, I don't know. You're messing this up. Look at all these mistakes. This entire batch is all screwed up because you couldn't tell 
that, you know, the color was off. And I was like, well, dude, I don't know what to tell you. I can't see what you're telling me. You're telling me this is, you know, this gold strip here and I'm, I, I don't see it. So what am I supposed to do here? And after about two or three ruined jobs where, you know, th this costs money. I mean, the, the, the dust jacket printing and the foil, it, it costs. And so they get kind of pissed when you're wasting materials. And especially when you're standing there going, yeah, but I can't, you know, I, 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 there's no way for me to self-correct on this. And it became clear that there was something wrong. And then um, they, they, he was just frustrated. He was just, Argh! and he was just, well, I don't know what to tell you. It's just wrong. And I can see it. And, and it was, and it was this really kind of difficult, awkward situation because I didn't want to be an asshole, but I, I, you know, if I can't see it, I can't see it. Uh, and he just didn't really understand, and neither did I. It didn't even occur to either of us, oh, maybe it's because Shelton's eyes are a little screwed up, right? That just didn't, didn't even occur to either of us. But shortly after that, I was just in the doghouse, and, um, and then there was an effort made to transfer me over into the printing press room where they actually print the dust jackets and the pages and stuff, the color stuff into the color printing room. And in order for me to go there, they had to test me for colorblindness. It's just part of the process of transferring somebody over there. They didn't think to do it when I was going on to the Sorolia, but apparently it was required for the printers because you had to have a perfect eye to be able to QC your work. And uh, when they tested me, lo and behold, oh, Shelton has a problem in this spectrum of color, right? And I was slightly colorblind. And so this was an internet test that was done. There were some tests of spotting numbers in fields of colors and stuff. And so this is how we figured it out. And once that became evident, well, then the explanation was right there for how I'd been screwing up the FOIL process, but it also disqualified me to go over into the printing area. And so I think at that point, that was near the end of my uh, residency, you could say, at Bridge, because then I got, got myself off onto recruitment. And then I was just out recruiting, and, they, and I wasn't working on the floor anymore. I got myself out of that after about nine months or so. And I was just, I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want to do it. It was no part of why I was in the Sea Org to make books. That was not my purpose in life. And uh, so I was kind of bucking the system, and they didn't really like me anyway. Uh, apparently, that's not hard to do <laughs> if I start, you know, getting uh, resistive. And so, you know, so they were happy to see me go, go off, and I started recruiting people, and I was a hell of a lot better at that than I was at uh, printing. So that was the story there, and that's kind of what happened, and... Um, you know, there were a lot of young people at Bridge. Bridge had been manned up a year before I got there, and a whole bunch of young Sea Org members had been thrown in there, and they were the ones who were doing uh, all the work on the floor, right? The older Bridge staff were, for the most part, working in the sales area or in the in the administrative areas, and they, that's not where they put me. They needed somebody to go onto the floor, so that's where I went. Um, and I didn't really get along very well with them. They, you know, my, the, the, my senior's senior really didn't like me. She really had a thing about me. I rubbed her the wrong way on day one. And uh, she kept thinking I was a slacker and I wasn't that hard of a worker. And, you know, and they had all, they had all also 
had a bit of an elitism because they had been there when Miscavige had been there. And Miscavige had been there to get everything in shape and get all the machines set up and figure out the lines and make sure that they were producing perfect books. And that was a two-year process, working that whole thing out so that all these people knew what the hell they were doing and that the books that they were producing were actually at the quality that Miscavige wanted. And they were good quality books. There is no question about that. Um, and it's very easy to tell when you're doing it wrong because it's in your hands. You go, hey, this is screwed up. This ink is smeared. This page is twisted or torn or, or the printing's off or this foil isn't right or the dust jacket's bent the wrong way. I mean, it's very easy to know you screwed up right on these books. Uh, and they had all been run through this gauntlet and they considered themselves the, you know, they, they were all that. So I was this new person coming into that, and I had an attitude, and I had just graduated the RPF, so I couldn't really be trusted. And, you know, so it's not like I fit in there really well and uh, and really appreciated being there. You know, I didn't want to be there. And, uh, and so the whole thing was just kind of nine months of not a lot of fun. And I don't think that they were very sad to see me go when I went off to the recruitment stuff. So... Anyway, there's the whole bridge story, and there you go. Jonathan Perry. Are Thetans inherently male or female? It sounds as if a Thetan is just a Thetan. So why would homosexuality be a problem? Also, what would the point of marriage be? I would think you would have had a relationship with thousands of people over your multiple lifetimes. Is it possible to have had one lifetime as a man and one lifetime as a woman? All right, so uh, this question comes up from time to time, and, and let me go into a bit of a deeper dive than maybe I've done before on this, okay? Um, there is a concept in Scientology of a valence or a personality package, and I have talked about valences before, but this is why Hubbard has it nailed as to why it is that misgendering or being, you know, thinking you are experiencing gender dysphoria and that sort of thing is a bad thing in Scientology and why Hubbard says spiritually you're screwed up if this is happening to you and, and that Scientology is what can fix you, um, but you're screwed up. And, and, it's, and, and you're right, Jonathan, in asking, well, a Thetan doesn't have a sex or a gender. I mean, it's a spiritual entity. There's no body. There's no male Thetans and female Thetans and child Thetans. There are older and younger Thetans, but Hubbard never explains why. He just says there are. So at least never anywhere that I ever saw. And we've all come into this physical universe from some other place, the Theta universe or the home universe, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Again, no explanations. But very clear, there is no sex. There's no, you know, there's no, that, that's just not part of the Thetan process, right? Or the Thetan life. Um, they, they wouldn't even, uh, you know, understand the concept until they got bodies and bodies reproduce and, you know, it's male and female. And, and how this works is when a Thetan gets in a body, the Thetan takes the body and makes it represent who the Thetan is in the physical universe. It's a role. It's an act. It's a, it's a thing they're doing. It's a doll that they're moving around and playing with. But the doll has gender, and the doll has 
limitations and things it can do and things it can't do. And Hubbard talked about this all the time, how how limited Homo sapiens are. We, you know, we can't go more than a mile up or a mile down in the in the, on the ground. Uh, we can't uh, fly. We, you know, we've only got you know this this limited temperature range that we can survive in, and so there's all these limitations. The Thetan takes all of that on as his own, or you know, if it's a female body, her own, and assumes this identity, assumes this valence. Okay, so the valence is a personality package. It's who this personality is. And if you're a male, then you've got all these male things. And if you're a female, you've got all these female things. And Hubbard was a product of the early 1900s in terms of his thinking about this. So all the, all the current thinking was completely alien to his way of looking at the world. He never, you know, gender dysphoria, transvestites, homosexuality, to his way of thinking, all of that was perverted nonsense. It was, it was immoral behavior, and it was a choice people were making to be that way. Or, as he put it in Dianetics, it was a re-stimulation of earlier stuff back on the track, earlier trauma that was causing the person to have this gender dysphoria or sexual misidentification or confusion or insistence that they be in a female valence personality when they have a male body. Hubbard said, well, this is a misidentification. This is wrong because you're acting as though you have this female valence. And he would be the first to admit you have had thousands and millions of female bodies in the past as well as male bodies. And I ran incidents in my past where I was a female as well as a male, imagining what that would be like, right? But at the time, I thought I was having real memories. Um, anyway, so these valence packages, though, are kind of important in Scientology because these are part of the, of the reason why you get screwed up is you're taking valences or personalities from your past and you're piling them on now. And they're inappropriate. They don't fit now. They fit back then. So you're using them now to solve problems you're experiencing now. And that's not good. That's part of the problem of why you're stuck in a body is because, you know, all these things rely on the fact that you're going to have a body. You know, the valence or personality of a Thetan who doesn't have a body would be a very different personality or point of view and perspective than, you know, the personality of somebody who believes I'm a guy and I'm going to have one life and I'm going to die and that's going to be it. That's a very limited point of view compared to a Thetan who has an infinite point of view. And Thetans have, through the experience of life after life after life, have been dwindled down in their awareness down to the point where they truly believe this is all there is. It's YOLO. It's only you only live once. And so here you go. You are a body. And of course, in Hubbard's way of thinking, that's not true. But, um, but this is what you believe. So he doesn't treat Scientologists as though they all understand that they're immortal spiritual beings who are going to live forever. That's knowledge that comes to you gradually. You don't, you don't get all that on day one necessarily. And so you have to deal with the person in front of you because just just because I explained to you that you're a Thetan who has lived forever doesn't mean you suddenly go, oh, 
ding, and I'm OT. Ah, now I can flit off to Mars, right? It's not, it doesn't work like that. Uh, it, it's a little more complicated, right? You got to go deal in auditing with all of these personalities and, and uh, trauma and all this stuff that's happened to you, right? And this, all this mess is what auditing is supposed to be undoing or, you know, taking apart. And this is why it's hundreds and thousands of hours of work to do it, because there's a lot of work to do to undo all these billions of years of crap that have happened to you. And Hubbard, you know, glorifies Scientology by saying, look, it's a lot of work, but it's kind of a miracle that we worked it out that you could get all of this in one lifetime, that you can undo all of the billions of lifetimes you've had in just one lifetime. Like, what? This is a miracle. You should be happy, right? And this is how it's presented to Scientologists. So, so I hope in all of this, I'm painting this picture here where it's really not as simple as, oh, you're just a thetan and you don't have sex. And so why is homosexuality a problem? Homosexuality is a problem because you're in a male body. And according to L. Ron Hubbard, that means a male personality is what's appropriate. So if you have some kind of female thing going on or some mixed thing going on, some sort of pansexuality thing going on, you're not really being in valence. You're not really being a guy. You're being all these other things, and you're drawing on your past life experiences to feed those personalities, and that's called restimulation, and that's bad. Because restimulation is pulling in all this energy and mass on yourself, and this is how you get sick, and this is how you have accidents, and this is how you get all screwed up and have chronic pains and chronic conditions. And Hubbard just thought that this whole dysphoria problem or transvestitism, et cetera, et cetera, are all just confusions, are all just, just restimulations that are happening to the person. And if you were to audit them and clear all that away, they would no longer have any of that. That wouldn't be part of their personality anymore. It's all bunk, okay? Everything I just said is just Hubbard's nonsense, okay? So I'm don't, don't put it out there that this is what I think, but I'm just explaining how Hubbard kind of, if you go through, you know, this is, this is my interpretation of a lot of reading and a lot of listening to Hubbard on this subject and um, and this is kind of what I walked away with. Other Scientologists, other former Scientologists might have other explanations for this for, from their view and their experience, but this is what I know, and, and so that's what I can share. And I, I hope all of that makes a certain kind of sense, even though it really is kind of all nonsense. <laughs> Sane Davis. I have done introductory Scientology services, and they were actually helpful, and hence I got more hooked into it. But I encountered problems doing an auditing step on the TRs and Objectives co-audit course. For the first time, I started having anxiety and would get up in the middle of the night feeling afraid. Nobody at the mission could explain it. They did some corrective auditing, but without result. The only answer I got was, something got turned on. In your experience with Scientology, did something like this happen to anyone? Is it a nervous breakdown? Also, I was told I was red-tagged, but I don't know what that means. I got medical tests done, but nothing appeared in them. Furthermore, after a few weeks, the Scientologist called me and told me that LRH says that a person can become OT at any point. Does she mean that I have become an OT? I used to be enthusiastic toward life and would be focused in my efforts. I journaled about these thoughts for around four years, after which the anxiety has reduced, but still I have not bounced back. 
What can I do to regain my earlier mental status? Whom should I see for help? A psychiatrist or psychologist or anybody else? Wow. Okay. Well, thank you very much for for telling me all of this. And um, I did edit this question. Actually, it was actually a bit longer when when the the person who sent it to me. Um, and I want to say first off, wow, that really sucks. I'm really sorry that you that you're having to experience that. And that does sound like something turned on. I mean, I I, I kind of have to say, well, yeah, that sounds like a, a a reductio ad absurdum explanation. But yeah, something happened. And if you've had medical testing or extensive medical, you know, searching exams um, and nothing's really unusual or coming up in that regard, then anxiety as a mental state is a psychological condition that should be dealt with through psychological means. And that means seeing a medical professional, a mental health medical professional, a psychiatrist and or a psychologist, right? Do not go to a family doctor, medical doctor, or your ER tech or something to get psychotropic medications. I, I actually am going to probably do a, a critical conversations on this because we need to talk about that topic. Um, it's You really want to go to a mental health professional. People who prescribe psych drugs who are not mental health professionals but are just medical professionals do not know what they are doing. And, uh, and, and it's, it's just, it's already difficult enough with a mental health professional. Um, this is a very gray field. This is not settled science. This is not all worked out. Psychotropic medications are not nailed down as to this does this and this does this and this does this and this is going to work on you. And this is, it, it doesn't work like that at all. It's still very hit and miss. And in many, many ways, um, everybody is still a bit of a guinea pig when it comes to psychotropic medications. That's not to say they don't do help or they don't do good or that people are not benefited by taking them. But let's be honest, it's a little bit of a crapshoot until you work out what you need and how you need it and in what volume and how frequently. And I think a lot of people who have taken psychotropics or are on them now would agree with me on this. So, um, Okay, so that kind of, but if, but in moving in the direction of anti-anxiety meds or assistance or therapy in the direction of helping or treating trauma and anxiety, there are specialists who do this. Uh, there are, there's a lot known about trauma, and um, and it might well be that something was triggered in you uh, during this auditing that you were receiving. It was objective kind of auditing. So it was moving things around, moving your body around kind of stuff. It wasn't subjective. And I'm not in any way saying that you had a nervous breakdown. I'm not, I would not say that at all. Um, I, I, I simply don't know. And, and even if I did, I wouldn't, you know, throw something like that and diagnosis at you. I, I'm not the guy to make that diagnosis, but I am here to tell you that trauma is real. Anxiety is usually uh, fed from some kind of trauma and a trauma specialist can help you sort that out. So I highly recommend seeing one. And that's, that's about the best advice I know how to give on this. Other than, of course, getting yourself educated on the subject as well. That has always been my first line of attack uh, when experiencing any kind of mental health issue is get educated, find out all about what is going on with you through the literature, through books, et cetera. And, and you can, you know, see what the actual science on the thing is. So that's my best foot forward on advice to you. I hope it helps. And you can let me know if it doesn't, or if I have said something you want to know more about. Okay. Steph CLO. 
If Scientology ever lost their tax-exempt status in the U.S., and if there was enough pressure brought to bear on them from ex-Sea Org members and staff, such as numerous lawsuits, could you see a time where a class action lawsuit could be filed and successfully won? I would think there would be a lineup of XSO members ready to sign to get compensation from all over the world, really. Do you know if a class action lawsuit can be filed against a church even? I would not care so much about the amount of damages, but just a recognition of the harm done. Curious if you could also comment on the church's cash flow. We know they're worth billions, but is this in buildings slash real estate or serious cash reserves? All right. Thank you for this wide-ranging questions. Uh, okay. So first off, I am not a lawyer, and I do not know or understand the first thing about class action lawsuits. So I really can't speak intelligently about them. Um, I, you know, sure, of course, class action lawsuits could be filed against the church. Uh, if it lost its tax-exempt status, then that would be good. But it still would not have lost its religious status. And let's keep that in mind. Because it's important um, as, a, as a point. Just because they don't have tax exemption, they would still be recognized in a court of law as a religious organization and a, a validated, you know, accredited whatever religion. And so First Amendment privileges would still apply to a great number of their activities. And they would still be getting a pass on things or religious exemption for certain things. But... Um, Boy, would they be in a lot of financial trouble if they lost their tax-exempt status. So it would be a crushing blow to Scientology to have that happen. Could that be followed up by a class action lawsuit? I guess. Would there be a lot of people who'd like to get on board with that? Sure, absolutely. Of course there are. You know, But taking Scientology on legally is uh, a difficult task. I think, I think we've proven that over the many years I've been commenting on it. Uh, it's hard. And so the idea of taking on taking them on through class action, you know, I don't know. You'd have to talk to a lawyer about that. As far as um, the cash flow, um, the best conjecture on this is that the church has obviously invested a ton of money in real estate, and so the evaluation of the church's you know total worth and all of that is very much reliant on their real estate holdings. But we don't necessarily know everything about their cash reserves. They're not exactly transparent with that. They do have to be transparent with the IRS, and they had to be audited very, very closely by the IRS back when they got their tax exemption, and then like five and 10 years later. So it's not that the IRS doesn't have a clue about what the church's finance, financial situation is, at least as Scientology presented it to them but I have reason to believe that they lied through their teeth and uh, and cooked their books in order for the IRS to give them that tax exempt status. I know for a fact, and we have I've talked years ago on video on this channel about the specific things that Scientology lied about to get their tax exempt status. So if they lied in the data, could they have lied in the numbers? Absolutely, right? So so I don't know if the IRS actually knows the the long and short of Scientology's finances financial situation. And um and even if they did, I don't know what the totals are. And I don't know that anybody has, you know, is privy to that knowledge outside of the church. So that's what I can say about that, right? Is best guess, yeah, it's real estate holdings, but you know, do we know for sure? No, we don't. <laughs> All right, let's do some flash answers.
Adria Vici Haloop. If copyrighted material was not an issue, what would the most awesome graphic tee you could imagine look like? I did an image, and I'm going to search for it and see if I can dig it up so I can show it to you guys, of Iron Man holding a lightsaber. And I just thought there is no end to the awesome of, Iron, of an Iron Man suit with a lightsaber. I just, I, I can't think of anything more awesome, but that's, that's me. <laughs> Jonathan Perry. I think we're all familiar with the term WOG. I was wondering where the term came from. Was it an acronym or just a random word that Hubbard made up? No, WOG is a very offensive British slang term for, in, for people from the Indian subcontinent, as I understand it. The way I learned about it, though, was in the Technical Dictionary of Scientology and in Scientology parlance, is it was presented as an acronym, W-O-G, standing for Worthy Oriental Gentleman. And I did not get the racist overtones of that when I was a Scientologist at all. I did not understand that, but I now do. So I tend to not try to use the word or minimize my use of the word because it's an offensive racial slur. So it comes out of uh, England or Britain, uh, and I think Hubbard picked it up when he was over in the UK. Travis, would you trust a CPA who has a tongue ring? You know, I should. There really isn't any reason why I shouldn't trust a CPA with a tongue ring, but I don't know that I would. <laughs> All right. That is our show for this week, guys. Thanks very much for coming around and watching. Um, as always, if you find the show interesting, informative, and educational, and I hope you do, and I hope I'm doing a good job here, um, consider supporting me through Patreon. I Again, I have gotten some really great uh, support from people lately. There have been a number of signups, and that has been awesome. Thank you all for doing that. Uh, more is needed. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're not at our goal. And um, and just to throw a goal out there, by the way, I you know I don't really talk numbers ever, um, but I don't know. Maybe somebody's interested. So I'm trying to get my Patreon up to two thousand a month. Right now, it is not that. It is. Uh, it is below 1200 actually. And so there's a long way to go to get me to a place where I'm actually sort of financially stable and uh, really don't have any concerns about that so that I can just, you know, nose to the grindstone on stuff. So that's what that's the goal. That's the target. That's what I'm trying to get to. And quite honestly, if everybody who watched my show just pitched in a dollar a month, it'd be done. I mean, I'd be I'd be beyond that. So you know, that's kind of why I throw that out there is it's as I, I just don't think that's that much to ask for for the content I produce. And that being said, thank you very much for watching. I'll see you guys next week. Bye bye.